Antarctica has captured the imagination of many who claim ancient civilizations lie buried beneath the ice and rumors of extraterrestrial contact and advanced technology hidden in its remote corners abound. While the secular narrative dismisses many of these theories as speculative or lacking evidence, supporters argue that Antarctica holds clues to humanity's past, present and future that have yet to be fully explored and understood. In this video, I am to discuss the truth surrounding Antarctica with the goal to entice people to read the works within the Bible so that they may follow more closely the Word of God. If you enjoyed the contents of this video, please remember to like, and if you would want to see more, subscribe. Antarctica, a location of ice and mystery, has been the stage for numerous famous expeditions that have captivated the imagination of explorers and adventurers for centuries. These explorations, driven by a spirit of discovery, scientific inquiry, and human endurance, have pushed the boundaries of exploration unraveling the secrets of this remote and inhospitable location. The first of many well-documented explorations of the region can be attributed to the voyages of Captain James Cook during the 18th century. Captain Cook, an iconic figure of maritime exploration, emerged from humble beginnings to become one of the most accomplished navigators and cartographers of his time. Born in 1728 in Marton, Yorkshire, Cook began his seafaring career as an apprentice in the British Merchant Navy before rising through the ranks of the Royal Navy. His unparalleled skills in navigation and cartography, coupled with a relentless spirit of curiosity, led to a series of transformative voyages. The first of Cook's voyages began in 1768 and lasted until 1771. Whilst aboard the HMS Endeavour, with the objective of observing the transit of Venus and the general exploration of the Pacific Ocean, Cook greatly contributed to the understanding of geography and navigation, later impacting the subsequent voyages near Antarctica. The second voyage began in 1772 and lasted until 1775. This time, whilst aboard the HMS Resolution and the HMS Adventure, Cook explored the Southern Ocean with the goal of discovering the elusive continent of Terra Australis Incognita, which is translated to the unknown land of the South. While the expedition skirted the edges of the Antarctic Circle and explored the Southern Ocean extensively, it did not encounter Antarctica. The third voyage began in 1776 and lasted until 1779. Whilst aboard the HMS Resolution and HMS Discovery, Cook, again, did not encounter Antarctica, as the objective focused on finding a northern passage between the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. As is evidently expressed within each explanation of his voyages, Cook did not discover Antarctica. However, due to his efforts, his produced charts and navigational records not only aided himself, but the subsequent expeditions carried out by driven explorers in the following centuries. This is all worthy of praise, but the secular history surrounding Captain Cook and his great achievements will refrain from describing his Christian beliefs. I mention this due to the fact that Cook used the scriptures to help his understanding of sea currents and navigation. These scriptures were fundamental to his ventures and a foundation for his purpose. For the next example, 
highlighting key persons and their expeditions to the unknown southern region, I draw attention to a man named James Clark Ross. Ross, a distinguished British naval officer and polar explorer of the 19th century, stands as one of the most significant figures in the history of Antarctic exploration. Born in 1800 into a family renowned for its seafaring tradition, Ross embarked on a remarkable career marked by pioneering voyages to the polar regions, with his name becoming synonymous with groundbreaking achievements in both the Arctic and Antarctic. The expeditions, beginning in 1839 and lasting until 1843, possessed the primary objectives of charting the Antarctic coastline, investigating potential landmasses, and conducting scientific research, including magnetic, wildlife, and geographic observations. The accepted narrative names one of the most significant achievements of Ross's expeditions as the discovery of the Ross Sea, a large bay in Antarctica's coastline that reportedly extends into the continent between Victoria Land, named after Queen Victoria, and Marie Bird Land, later named after the wife of the 20th century explorer, Richard Bird, who will be discussed shortly. Other major discoveries reportedly made by Ross include the Ross Ice Shelf, described as a massive floating ice shield that extends along the Antarctic coastline into the Ross Sea, and the two prominent volcanoes named Mount Erebus and Mount Terror, acquiring their names from the expedition's ships. Unlike Captain Cook, the efforts of James Ross not only achieved discovery, but also involved charting the supposed landmass of Antarctica. Once Ross returned, the outlined continent soon appeared on published maps of the discovered world, with the contents therein seemingly making the world a smaller place. However, it would be because of flight, not sail, that the mystery of Antarctica would later reignite. This brings us to a man known as Richard Evelyn Byrd, famously referred to as Admiral Byrd. Richard Byrd, born on October 25, 1888, in Winchester, Virginia, was an American naval officer, aviator, and polar explorer who made significant contributions to the exploration of Antarctica and the advancement of aviation technology. Byrd's passion for exploration led him to undertake several groundbreaking expeditions to the world's polar regions, earning him international acclaim and recognition. Byrd's interest in aviation began during his time at the United States Naval Academy, where he graduated in 1912. He quickly distinguished himself as a skilled pilot and became one of the Navy's foremost aviation pioneers. Byrd's early accomplishments included developing innovative navigation techniques and participating in numerous aerial missions during World War I. In the years following the war, Byrd's attention turned to polar exploration, particularly Antarctica. His first expedition to Antarctica took place during 1928 to 1930, known as the First Bird Antarctic Expedition. During this expedition, Bird established Little America, a base camp on the Ross Ice Shelf, from which he conducted extensive scientific research and exploration flights over the supposed continent. His aerial surveys and geographic discoveries significantly expanded the known boundaries of Antarctica and paved the way for future explorations. Bird's most famous expedition, the Second Bird Antarctic Expedition, 1933 to 1935, further solidified his reputation as a polar explorer. During this expedition, Bird made history by becoming the first person to reportedly fly over the South Pole on November 29, 
1929, aboard his Ford Trimotor aircraft, the Floyd Bennett. This remarkable achievement earned Byrd widespread acclaim and cemented his legacy as one of the greatest explorers of the 20th century. However, it didn't end there. As a renowned polar explorer and naval officer, Byrd was chosen to lead the expedition known as the United States Antarctic Service Expedition, 1939-1941, due to his extensive experience and expertise. The USASC's primary objectives included conducting scientific studies in various disciplines such as geology, meteorology, glaciology, biology and oceanography, as well as mapping unexplored regions of the continent. In addition to scientific research, the USAC also contributed to technological advancements in polar exploration. Byrd and his team tested innovative equipment, transportation methods and survival techniques tailored to the extreme conditions, paving the way for future expeditions and operations in the region. And so, an aforementioned future expedition, Operation High Jump, takes the stage. High Jump was a major United States Navy expedition to Antarctica that took place from 1946 to 1947. Led by Admiral Byrd, Operation High Jump was the largest Antarctic expedition up to that point in history. Similar to the prior expedition, the objectives were to conduct scientific studies, establish research bases, to test military equipment, and to assert American interests in the region. The expedition was launched shortly after World War II and involved a significant deployment of resources, including multiple ships, aircraft, and personnel. The task force included an aircraft carrier, several seaplane tenders, helicopters, cargo ships, and support vessels. In total, over 4,000 military personnel, scientists, and support staff participated in the operation. The sheer display of power brought to the wintry waste has fueled the belief in German occupation remaining in the region, with their own research still being conducted. German expeditions are a documented fact for Antarctica, taking place in the late 1930s, in which the goals of said expeditions coincide with the Americans to map and document any and all discoveries. However, the outbreak of World War II reportedly disrupted a majority of documented evidence surrounding the Germans and their Antarctic interests. This has given rise to many speculative theories of advanced crafts and capabilities developed by the Germans, with potentially occultic powers and objects at play. Such topics and speculations are not the subject of this video, as they deserve their own allotted time. However, much like the Germans, Admiral Byrd is not unfamiliar with controversy surrounding his involvement with Antarctica. Unlike your typical conspiracies, the additional facts or speculations do not originate from the mouth of others, rather, in the case of Admiral Byrd, from the horse itself. During an episode of the American TV series Longini's Chronoscope, Admiral Byrd tells plainly what it is he saw. Good evening, this is Frank Knight. May I introduce our co-editors for this edition of the Longines Chronoscope? Larry Lasseur, CBS News correspondent, and Kenneth Crawford, National Affairs Editor of Newsweek magazine. Our very distinguished guest for this evening is Admiral Richard E. Byrd. The North Pole used to be a no-man's land, but uh, these are the days when, by buying a ticket on a commercial airliner, you can fly across the North Pole and drink a cocktail at the same time. Yet only three score or more years ago, about 35 years ago, our guest tonight 
found out whether there was any land north of the North American continent. He made that first discovery flight, and I must say that Admiral Byrd, our guest tonight, is not only our greatest living explorer, but he's been an inspiration to countless Americans. Admiral Byrd, you've been to both the North Pole and the South Pole. Is there any unexplored land left on this earth that might appeal to adventurous young Americans? Uh, yes, there is. And not up around the North Pole, because it's getting crowded up there now, because they find out it's really usable, not only to live in, but militarily. But strangely enough, there's left in the world today an area as big as the United States that's never been seen by a human being. And that's beyond the pole on the other side of the South Pole from Middle America. And it's, uh, I think it's quite astonishing that there should be an area as big as that unexplored. That's a tremendous So challenge. there's a lot of adventure left mm. down at the bottom of the world. Well, Admiral, do you hope to see that? I do. As stated by Byrd, continuing from the South Pole of Antarctica, a region as big as the United States is left undiscovered. Because of the potential wealth left to unearth, he later explains the shared interest of many nations in the untapped resources of Antarctica. This Longinus Chronoscope episode featuring Admiral Byrd aired on the 8th of December 1954. Almost five years later, on December 1st, 1959, a treaty named the Antarctic Treaty would be signed, greatly restricting access to Antarctica. Heralded as one of the most successful examples of international cooperation, the key provisions of the treaty included the following. Demilitarization. The treaty designates Antarctica for peaceful purposes only, explicitly prohibiting any military activity, including the establishment of military bases and the testing of weapons. Freedom of scientific research. The treaty promotes scientific cooperation and collaboration among nations by ensuring the freedom of scientific investigation and exchange of research results. It encourages the sharing of scientific data and information for the benefit of all countries. Territorial claims. The treaty neither recognizes nor disputes existing territorial claims in Antarctica. It maintains the status quo of territorial sovereignty while suspending any new claims during the duration of the treaty. Environmental protection. The treaty emphasizes the protection of Antarctica's unique environment and ecosystems. It prohibits any harmful activities that could disrupt or damage the delicate Antarctic ecosystem, including pollution and waste disposal. Consultative meetings. The treaty establishes a system of regular consultative meetings among signatory nations to discuss matters related to Antarctica's governance, scientific research and environmental protection. These meetings allow for the exchange of information, the coordination of research efforts and the resolution of disputes. And lastly, duration and review. The treaty has an indefinite duration and includes provisions for periodic review and amendment to ensure its effectiveness and relevance over time. Among the signatories of the treaty were seven countries, Argentina, Australia, Chile, France, New Zealand, Norway and the United Kingdom. The treaty entered into force in 1961 and has since been acceded to by many other nations. The total number of parties to the treaty is now 56. It is exactly because of the Antarctic Treaty that any attempt of an expedition without permission is considered illegal 
and will result in a fine or a prison sentence. This is contrary to the held beliefs of Admiral Byrd and the hosts of the Longini's Chronoscope 1950s TV show, as Antarctica would not be for everyone, only those with influence and power. The only possibility for members of the public to explore Antarctica since the treaty's inception is to purchase a ticket for the expensive journey, usually via cruise ship, in which you sail to the outermost regions allowed for commercial vessels, and, perhaps if you have more wealth to spend, a half-day outing on an exposed beach via a tender. For a once-in-a-lifetime trip, you merely glimpse its form, never mind its entirety. Returning to the treaty, one of the major components in its creation and organization was the United Nations. The United Nations, commonly referred to as the UN, is an international organization founded in 1945, following the end of World War II, with the primary goal of promoting peace, security, cooperation, and development among member states. Inspecting the logo of the UN grants a perspective on the world that directly opposes the United Nations and its supposed global interests. Beginning first with the laurel wreath. The wreath symbolizes victory, triumph, and success. The wreath surrounds the enclosed continents, indicating victory over them. However, the circular enclosure of the wreath could represent not only symbolic containment, but also physical containment. Perhaps between the leaves is all that there is, all lands, all nations, and the wreath itself represents the walls of an enclosure. Logos are more than an identifying image. They are a symbol, an idea, a discovery, a question, a fact. Through symbols, secrets are hidden. Shapes and drawn gestures have helped forbidden knowledge survive for generations. It needs no tongue to be understood. It speaks through drawn suggestions. If you can correctly interpret the designer's intent, then you will receive their message. To help illustrate my point, with the purpose to educate and invite speculation, I will introduce a few examples. First, the World Economic Forum, a simple logo with the layered words having a circular line drawn through them. The struck letters are all O's. For those who have eyes to see, let them see. The resulting message is the number of his name, the number of the beast, 666. Likewise with our next example. The logo for Google Chrome is a circle within a circle, representing an eye, a window to the soul, a portal to look or even step through. The spiraling design of the colors certainly perpetuates the vortex-like motion. However, an additional perspective, one that relates to the already given suggestions, the curved colors create the arch of a six. And as there are three exterior colors, there are three sixes. Six, six, six. Next, we have the PlayStation logo. A stylized P stands upright and an S trails behind. With this logo in mind, are you playing a PlayStation or playing Satan as this serpentine logo slithers towards you? There are countless more to give, but to end this related tangent on a more familiar note, the Apple logo. The forbidden fruit which was enticed to be eaten by the suggestions via the serpent is unknown. However, it is commonly referred to as being an apple. With the bite of its flesh, sin entered man and the world. This logo comes from a company that sold its first computer for $666.
to now return to the United Nations, focusing on the illustrated continents. Perhaps this top-down perspective is truly the position of the Earth. With the North being the centre, the South is then directly opposite to that. There would be no left to right, entering and exiting akin to a Pac-Man level. The way to travel from nation to nation would be to travel in a circular motion if you wished to go east or west. If you were to take this image and stretch its face around a ball, the result would very much produce an illustration we are all familiar with. Antarctica would be transformed from a white halo containing the continents to a location at the southernmost point now surrounded by the world's oceans. Sometimes the truth is directly in front of your face. However, perhaps the truth isn't as leveled as the minority believes. I introduce this individual and his findings due to his faith in the scriptures and his efforts to correctly illustrate what he believed to be the true cosmology of this realm. Orlando Ferguson is primarily known for his unique and controversial map projection, which gained attention in the late 19th century. Born in 1845 in Madison, Wisconsin, Ferguson became intrigued by the idea of creating a map projection that aligned with his beliefs about the shape of the Earth. In 1893, Ferguson published his map projection titled Map of the Square and Stationary Earth. The map depicted the Earth as a flush, square surface with the North Pole at the center and the continents arranged symmetrically around it. Ferguson's map included annotations and biblical references intended to support his flush Earth model. At the base of Orlando's illustration are scriptures that condemn the globe. The reference scriptures will be explored, but first we will begin with the foundation. Christ Jesus is the foundation. He is the cornerstone of your faith. He is the word who has been since the beginning. He was made flesh to die for your sins so that belief in him, the truth, could set you free. If you deny the word, you deny Christ. If you refuse truth, the truth will depart from you. The word foundation occurs 86 times within the King James Bible. As Christ is the creator of all things, by following his detailed design of our realm, piece by piece, layer by layer, it will produce the truth of what's beneath our feet and above our heads. To begin, we will start in the book of Job. Context to the scriptures will be given, but not to the extent of previous videos. The focus this time is on the words used throughout the Bible that due to their repeated uses are not symbolic but literal descriptions. Job chapter 38 reads, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where waste thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The Lord has appeared before Job, after Job has questioned God on his reasoning. The chapter emphasizes that Job, in his limited perspective, cannot possibly fathom the reasons for the Lord's actions, decisions, or creations. Within verses 6 to 7, we are told how the foundations of the world are fastened, they are fixed, immovable, and that the foundation has a beginning and end point, creating corners. 
the highlighted verses also give insight into the true identity of stars and that angels, the sons of God, witnessed the creation of the earth as heaven and its inhabitants were finished before the construction of the earth began. Jumping to Revelation, following on from the detail of the corners of creation, a verse which is also included upon Orlando's map, is within chapter 7. It reads, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. This comes after the opening of the fifth seal, to which the heaven has departed like a scroll, a point relating to the firmament. However, for now, let's return to inspecting the use of foundation within the scriptures. Returning to Job, but this time reading from chapter 22. These verses, with the additional mention of God's walked path in heaven, bolster Orlando's illustration. Although the earth does have cornerstones, it is within the center of the foundation where the circular covering is placed, to which all live beneath and the Lord walks above. Chapter 22 reads, is not God in the height of heaven, and behold the height of the stars, how high they are? And thou sayest, How doth God know? Can he judge through the dark cloud? Thick clouds are a covering to him, that he seeth not, and he walketh in the circuit of heaven. Hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden, which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overflowing with a flood? This chapter is speaking against those who deny the Lord. The use of foundation used in this example is not discussing the world, but rather the wicked, whose foundations, rooted in sin, were washed away in the flood. I highlight this use to showcase the clear difference in the use of foundation, how it is applicable to creation, but also to a nation, people, or individual, depending on the context. Moving to Psalms, that uses foundation as a literal act, Psalm 102 reads, I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days, thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. The verses reveal known truths, such as the Lord being everlasting, a being who has no beginning or end. He is simply the I Am. From man's perspective, since times of old, the foundations have been laid, and looking up reveals the works of the Lord's hands. However, it is not a singular heaven, but multiple heavens that are used, as the scriptures reveal the many layers of what's above and what dwells within them. For example, Genesis chapter 1 reads, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. The heaven described here is not the same heaven to where the Lord walks in a circuit above and upon the firmament, this is instead the high sky to which fowls may fly in the open heaven below the firmament. Moving to Isaiah, chapter 48 reveals not only the straight face of the earth's foundation from which everything was built, but also the spanning of the heavens, which further indicates the dimensions of our realm. Chapter 48 reads, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. Spanning is a term used when measuring with the hand. When measuring with one's hand, it is typical to lay your fingers or palm completely flat 
in order to obtain the required measurements. You would not curl your hand into a ball if you wished to measure with your fingers. To now move from the foundation to the firmament, I begin by inspecting its described likeness to material. Again, we refer to Job. Chapter 37 reads, Hast thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong and as a molten-looking glass? Here, the sky is described as being strong, as a molten-looking glass. Glass, of course, you can see through, and when someone comments on the appearance of the sky, they highlight the colour of it. If it were the things below, they'd refer to the clouds in their amazement. Similar to the word spanning, the spreading out of the sky indicates a levelled surface. If you were to spread out dough, it'd be on a flat surface, and likewise when you spread the table, placing furnishings and provisions, you are not expecting your guest to eat off a ball. As we peer through the looking glass, if the sky appears blue and then black at night, why is that? Well, for that answer, I refer back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 reads, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Additional verses were included to acquire the complete context, but also to allow me to address some needed points. On the first day, light was created, differentiating itself from the dark. So, from the very beginning, there was morning and evening, day and night. The six days of creation is not billions of years. Returning to the firmament. At this point in creation, there was only water, and so the Lord separated these layers with an arch. Arches, and likewise domes, can support a much greater load than a horizontal beam. Due to the formation, additional materials are not needed, as the constructed shape supports itself and the weight it bears above it. The firmament, with its transparent appearance, allows us to see the separated waters above. In the presence of light, similar to the waters of an ocean, the sky appears blue. However, in the absence of light, the waters appear black, creating night. The stars do not twinkle by themselves, just as the sun's rays create shimmers on the water as we gaze at the stars through the firmament, likewise their shimmer is due to the water. Retouching upon the detail of glass, due to the firmament's molten-like appearance and the waters in which it holds, this likely is the reasoning for its sea-like descriptions when viewing from above. Revelation chapter 4 reads, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The Lord's throne sits upon the firmament from which his glory emanates. This verse adds an additional description of the firmament, likening it to crystal. When you shine light through either glass or crystal, the result is a phenomenon known as refraction. 
Refraction is the bending of light through substances such as water, glass, and other transparent materials. As the light travels through each layer, it magnifies the light, fractionating the single source into multiple, creating the colors of a rainbow. To help illustrate my point, I refer to Ezekiel chapter 1. It reads, And the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creature was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. The firmament above the heads of all those below was the color of a terrible crystal. The term terrible within the Bible is often used to describe dread. Just as Moses returned to the camp from off the mountain, his face shining with the light of the Lord, here too, that same brilliance is striking fear into the one who witnesses it, just as the Israelites hid from Moses' enlightened appearance. If there is any doubt that the brilliance forming the colors of the described crystal originates from the Lord, then one must simply read the following verses to confirm this fact. Chapter 1 continues to read, And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. So, I ask that the next time you enjoy the spectacle often referred to as the Northern Lights, you are reminded that what you are witnessing is the glory of the Lord, His divine brilliance shining through the firmament and glimmering in the heavens above our heads. Relating to the firmament, except this time, the operations against it, via the hands of the world's governments, I draw attention to an event named Operation Fishbowl. Operation Fishbowl was a series of high-altitude nuclear tests conducted by the United States as part of its larger Operation Dominic, which aimed to test various aspects of nuclear weapons technology during the Cold War era. The specific objective of Operation Fishbowl was to evaluate the effectiveness of nuclear weapons in space and their potential impact on the Earth's magnetosphere. Beginning in 1962, Operation Fishbowl comprised several nuclear detonations launched from Johnston Atoll in the Pacific Ocean. The tests were reportedly conducted at high altitudes to observe the behavior of nuclear explosions in the near-vacuum conditions of space and their interaction with the Earth's magnetic field. These detonations were part of the broader effort by both the United States and the Soviet Union to develop and understand the capabilities of nuclear weapons during the Cold War arms race. The operation included several tests, notably bluegill, starfish and kingfish. Bluegill and starfish were the first attempts to launch nuclear warheads into space using Thor missiles. The goal was to determine the effects of nuclear detonations at various altitudes, including the potential disruption of communications and radar systems. Starfish, in particular, reportedly produced unexpected results when it created a temporary artificial radiation belt around the Earth, demonstrating the complexities of nuclear interactions with the magnetosphere. Kingfish, the final test of Operation Fishbowl, 
aimed to evaluate the effects of a high-altitude nuclear explosion on radar and communication systems. However, the test encountered technical difficulties and the warhead failed to detonate at the desired altitude. It is impossible for us to leave our glass confinement. However, that will not stop them from trying. When Hillary states, I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think. Or, the many SpaceX attempts showcase a dispersal of water vapor that they say emanates from the rocket. Or when the launching of rockets curves into the direction of the ocean. Or, when well-known brands also showcase this trapped trajectory, there is a reason for it. It is not a coincidence. Returning to scripture, the next focus is both the sun and moon. Isaiah chapter 40 reads, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. I found it important to begin with these verses due to the setting of the stage. We have discussed the foundations, that which everything is built upon. We have discussed the dome, which the Lord walks upon. We have discussed the material of the firmament through which the Lord views us like grasshoppers. And now, as the firmament is described as a tent, a tabernacle, it is the lights for both day and night that dwell within it. Psalm 19 reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. As is explained in Genesis, the sun and moon were only created once the firmament separated the waters. This tabernacle, a tent for creation, covers all sides. And just like a tent, it rests on a foundation, to which the leveled ground creates a flat surface. You do not camp in spherical tents, and neither does creation. The comings and goings of the waters are attributed to the supposed gravitational pull of the moon. However, the truth surrounding the movements of our waters is revealed in the scriptures. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 reads, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Not only is it touted for its gravitational pull, the secular narrative attributes the circuits of celestial bodies with the phasing of the moon. However, again scriptures reveal that the Lord is in control, orchestrating the changing of appearance. Psalm 104 reads, He appointed the moon for seasons, the sun knoweth his going down. To further solidify that it is not the sun which causes the appearance of the moon to change, I turn to Joshua. Joshua and the Israelites are at war with the Amorites. The enemies of the Lord have suffered massive defeats, and there are few that remain. To ensure the Lord's instructions are carried out, Joshua commands the sun and moon to cease. Joshua chapter 10 reads, Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, 
and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. If you are someone who believes the first beginning chapters of Genesis are allegorical, instead choosing the vain imaginings of man over the truth of the Lord, then do you believe what has been read to be false? Do you think you know better than the Lord? Was victory not achieved due to Joshua, a man who had complete faith in God, staying the sun and moon with the words from his mouth? Moving to Revelation, the events surrounding the sun and moon hint at a third body seated in the heavens, one that causes the eclipse. Revelation chapter 6 reads, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. The sun has been darkened, blacked out by an object. Similarly, the moon has been affected, this time appearing as blood, a red moon. This event is being witnessed by all, those who are in heaven, those who are on earth having received the seal of God, and those who are the subjects of God's wrath are all witnesses to this event, just as every eye shall see Jesus when he returns. If the moon is visible and distinct from the changed sun, then what is it that has eclipsed the sun? This has led many to believe in a third suspended body influencing the sun and causing eclipses that have been experienced for thousands of years. Remaining within Revelation chapter 6, the following verses bridge the gap onto the next subject, stars. It reads, And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. If the bodies of light we call stars in the night sky were billions of miles away, how could they fall so soon to earth? The theory of light speed and the needed time for each distant star to travel would not make this possible. However, if the stars above our heads were local to our position, then no doubt they would fall as figs from a tree. However, before furthering any insights on the positioning of stars, I will first provide perspectives on what they are. To begin, I refer to Job. Chapter 25 reads, Behold even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. Jumping to chapter 38, I again refer to verse 7. It reads, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. What sin have the stars committed to be seen as impure in the sight of the Lord? From the description of creation, they sang together, joyous at the laying of the earth's foundations. Psalm 147 reveals that they are all named and known by the Lord. It reads, He telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their names. The Psalms also call for the stars to praise God. Psalm 148 reads, Praise ye him, sun and moon, praise him, all ye stars of light. The scriptures claim that each star has its own glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 reads, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. The stars are said to be righteous. Daniel chapter 12 reads, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars for ever and ever. To answer my proposed question, 
Jude may give insight surrounding the transgression of select stars. Chapter 1 reads, Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. This comes seven verses after Jude explains the transgression of angels. Verse 6 reads, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. The angels did not keep their first estate. They moved from their ordained position. They wandered like the stars. Could the stars be akin to angels? Could they be beings capable of thought and the ability to go against the Lord's commandments? The scriptures certainly appear to suggest so. This is all worthy of its own video, but I end this topic by referring to the falling stars of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 reads, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. The stars that fell with Satan, a third of heaven, are angels who sided with the dragon. These fallen angels fell with their master due to their defiance of the Lord. I then propose this. Could each supposed falling star you see be another angel who chose darkness over light? If that is true, then do not wish upon them, as you are honouring darkness and not light. The prior chapters of Revelation undeniably link the phenomenon with falling stars and their chosen involvement with darkness. Revelation chapter 9 reads, and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. The star that fell is referred to as a being, as the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. This pit was no doubt formed by the puncturing of the earth. The pit has no depths, as it breaches the abyss from which smoke and locusts emerged. The hottest flame is a black flame, and so, like hell, the inhabitants of the abyss have been punished by fire until their release. It is up to speculation whether you believe the fallen star, referred to as a he, is Abaddon, or if the star and Abaddon are two separate beings. However, either interpretation of events closely relates stars and angels to a rebellious, punished, fallen state. Again, this is a subject worthy of its own video. However, I hope that the chosen examples have given you new perspectives on what winks in the sky and that their light is not so far away. For a biblical discussion on Antarctica, true cosmology needs to be considered so that perspective on the subject can be properly obtained, hence the extent to which I have gone to. However, to return to the frozen wastes, there is a hole within the ice that many share concerns over, with some even linking the breach with the bottomless pit mentioned within Revelation. One candidate is the Weddell Polynya, 
or Weddell Sea Polynya, an irregular area of open water surrounded by sea ice in the Weddell Sea of the Southern Ocean, located in Antarctica. This anomaly appeared every winter between 1974 and 1976 before disappearing into solid ice, seemingly forever. However, scientists discovered its reappearance again four decades later. Another candidate is Antarctica's many subglacial lakes, which are bodies of liquid water beneath the ice. However, these lakes are not holes in the traditional sense. Subglacial lakes, such as Lake Vostok, have been discovered through scientific research, and they provide insights into microbial life and the potential habitability of extreme environments. The third candidate and main proponent surrounding the belief in Antarctica's many entrances below the Earth stems from the supposed recordings found within the secret diary of Admiral Byrd. The only sources of information surrounding this topic are YouTube videos narrating the contents or the wiki page from which the referenced recordings are obtained. Reading through the time-stamped logs of the lost adventure certainly brings excitement. The described events mirror the latest King Kong films in which there is an underground ancient civilization with untouched greenery, surviving long extinct species and Nazi relics. However, anyone who has been exposed to the era of the internet when text blogs were more common may acquire a feeling that they are reading passionate fan fiction. Due to the vast history and accolades surrounding Admiral Byrd, any and all related information to him is seen in a favorable light by those in the truth movement. Well, my truth is the only truth, Jesus Christ. The Admiral was an extremely famous individual due to his expeditions. He rubbed shoulders with celebrities, politicians, and even the President of the United States. All of these figures played their part in the ongoing system of Babylon, to which the Admiral served with high honors, and which was built upon the cornerstone of Gnostic, Luciferian beliefs. The only cornerstone is Christ, and it is by believing in him and studying his preserved written word to which you will discover what seals this earth. Job chapter 38 reads, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with doors, when it brake forth, as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it, and break up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, and caused the dayspring to know his place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it? It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment. Additional verses were included to provide context. Again, this comes from the chapter in which the Lord is speaking to Job, informing him of truths that Job could not possibly comprehend from his own perspective. The Lord is describing creation, and through his descriptions, we learn how the sea is contained. Naturally, water will find its level. If there is an exit, it will take it and fill the pocket into which it has entered until it forms an even surface. So, what is creating this even surface? Does water stay or run off a ball, an object with no borders? The proud waves are kept in their place via a seal, a seal molded by the Lord's hand to which the edges of the seal stand upright like a garment. 
just as the secular belief in the vacuum of space, the truth movement has its own reasoning for looking outside our known lands. You will discover many supposed maps created by the truth community that seek to depict what they believe is outside and beyond the ice wall. However, it is my belief that this is a distraction. By fanning the flames of what lies beyond the stars or the high wall, you are preoccupied with what's outward instead of what's inward. Christ came to this earth, his hand is all over our continents. It was through the spreading of the gospel, the good news, that many were led to salvation. If you belong to the body of Christ and give in to itching ears of what lies beyond, then you ignore the great extent of those who died here, within the seal, to give your nations the message of the Lord. I could spend a lengthy amount of time showcasing research from government bodies that confirm the word of God. I could spend time discussing the laying of sea cables through which 90% of the world's information is transmitted and how on a leveled surface with the continents spread and not curved around a ball, the flat illustration mirrors the actual positioning of cables. I could spend time discussing the aerodynamics of planes and the lack of need for pilots to adjust for any curvature, which should be frequent due to the travelling speed. I could spend time discussing heat spots created by the sun and how it is not possible if it were truly millions of miles away. I could spend time discussing the effects of fisheye lenses and how they have been used for almost a hundred years. I could spend time discussing how Universal Studios knew the dimensions of the Earth decades before the marble photograph. I could spend time discussing how the Earth and its continents change shape every year when comparing with the same institutions or against other institutions. I could spend time discussing so much more. But these truths won't save you, and I'm not here to preach lesser truths, only the truth, Jesus Christ. He is coming, and it's sooner than you think. The truth is more fascinating than any novel, show, or film could create. God gave his only Son and poured out his wrath upon him for the world to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and receive salvation as the door is closing. As mentioned in the beginning of this video, the aim is to get you interested in the works of the Bible. If your interest has been piqued, then please read the original text yourself. If you have additional commentary on the events discussed within this video, then please leave a comment. I look forward to reading them. Additionally, if you have a different topic that you would like to see me tackle, then again, please leave a comment. If you wish to support the work I do here on this channel, please see my Patreon. You will be given exclusive access to additional content. On that note, thank you to my patrons and channel members. I am blessed to have your support. If you enjoyed, please remember to like and subscribe as it helps the channel immensely. God bless and goodbye.